Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 is our text. The message is God's final revelation. The book of Revelation is history written in advance. And Jesus Christ is the key figure. Everything else revolves around him. He is the subject of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. John the Apostle opens up the book of Revelation as he did his gospel. He gives us a prologue, and we want to focus on these opening three verses, which um, qualify the entire book of Revelation as the very introduction here, as God's divine inspired revelation. This is God's word. This is not opinion. John didn't have sunstroke on the island of Patmos. This is God's divine word. So let me read our text for us here. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must surely take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This introduction prologue in these three verses qualifies the entire book of Revelation as God's divine inspired revelation evident of three truths. First, the heavenly communication in verse 1. Secondly, you have the earthly affirmation of verse 2. And then thirdly, the spiritual compensation in verse 3. The heavenly communication comes first. The person notice of the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can't mistake in it. It's him and him alone. The name Jesus represents his um, past earthly existence and humility, emphasizing his humanity while veiling his majestic glory. When Jesus emptied himself, he emptied himself of his glory, not his deity. He veiled Himself with human flesh. The title of Christ represents the present position in heaven that we're seeing him here in chapter 1. Emphasizing his deity, his divinity. He is the God-man. Glorified. He bears the same body, the same marks, and he sits making intercession for you and I. Amazing. The phrase Jesus Christ appears five times between verse 1 and 9. And only two other times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, verse 17, and chapter 22, verse 21. Now, notice the name Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, it's the heart of it. It's the God-man. And um, it appears seven more times in the book of Revelation. There's different translations. If you have an RSV, a Revised Standard Version, it changes it a little bit. It has three times Jesus Christ, 11 times only Jesus. Um, and just be aware of the different um, um, interpretations of the manuscripts. The RSV uses the Westcott and Hort text, which we believe is the more inferior. But if you want to be on the intellectual academic side, you can go with them. I believe the Texas Receptor is the more valuable, the King James and the New King James. And uh, many of the footnotes in the RSV and others will say this is not found in the best of manuscript. That's a, that's a, that's a lie of a footnote. What it should say is, this is not found in three manuscripts which are believed to be the best, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and another one, I forget right now, but it is found in 5,000 others. That'd be a better footnote. That'd be a truthful footnote, okay? And they omit a lot of things like we looked in Luke where they omit the blood of Jesus Christ when they're profusing on that passion. Well, so you have to be careful with, with manuscripts. Now, 
The name and title marks the authority needed to be the representative here of man before God. The last Adam now being the victorious Christ. If you look at him in chapter 1, we're going to see him. I mean, he is, he's glorified. He, he's reigning. He's ruling. Uh, this describes the nature of the entire book of the book of Revelation. Um, the word revelation, apocalypsis, it means to lay bare or to make naked, uh, to unveil something. Like if you add a, a new vase in your home or furniture, you bring people over, they've never seen it. You add a custom made and you take that sheet and you unveil it. And now they see it clearly for the first time. This is what the book of Revelation is. The clear view of who Jesus is now after the atonement and what he is right now in heaven for us. And the word appears 18 times in the New Testament. This is the only time in the book of Revelation. And the word is used in the gospel, again, in the second coming also. Jesus is being revealed here and presented as the glorified Christ, the high priest in heaven, verse 12 through 18 and in verse 20. You can't miss it. He is standing in the midst of his seven churches, portrayed as all-wise, all-knowing, observing with penetrating eyes to judge all things in verse 12 through 15. No one needs to give him information. No one needs to tell him anything. He knows everything. He is the very word of God who conquered death and holds the keys of Hades and death in verse 16 through 18. He is directing the angels of the seven churches, verse 20. He is in control. That's why the audacity of any emergent church or any sense of running the church in a corporate manner is so crazy. He's the head. He directs. He guides. He does it all. If God had to reveal himself to man, it's because he couldn't be found by man. If he didn't reveal himself in the specifics, we would never have any idea about his plans and purposes. He revealed the promise of redemption to Adam and Eve right after the fall, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. If he wouldn't have given it, they would have never known it. He revealed to the prophets the coming incarnation of God, Genesis 49.10, the scepter would not depart from before Messiah or Shiloh would come. Isaiah 7.14, he says, a virgin shall bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6, a son shall be given. Uh, Micah 5.2, he'll be born in Bethlehem. We would never know that unless God gave it to us, revealed it to us. It's a message direct from heaven. The word apocalypse is also used in what's described uh, in literature, it's a call um, between 200 and 100. It's called uh, pseudopographic literature. A big word that it means that they were writing literature during that time. And they would usually ascribe it to a person of old, like Moses or Ezra, stuff like that, instead of their own name. But this is the 400 years of silence. The last prophet that was speaking under inspiration was Malachi. 400 years of silence, intertestamental period. John the Baptist opens the New Testament. Malachi closes with the message of repentance. John the Baptist opens up with the message of repentance, the kingdom of God at hand. Now, any literature within this 400 year, whether it's during this 200 period or not, it is not inspired. It is well intended. It's good literature at times, but it's not inspired. It's not inerrant. It's not infallible. God's not behind it. And often it contradicts the word of God. Simple. The apocryphal books of the Catholic Church fit right there. All right? The Maccabees and Tobit and all of those, okay? They contradict much of the scripture. And not only that, to who was the Old Testament given? To the Jews. The Jews don't acknowledge them. The Catholic Church didn't exist until 312. 
A.D. So how can she claim them? She has no authority over the Old Testament. It's ridiculous. This is the Word of God. He reveals Himself. And so the purpose of the writings of uh, pseudo-prographic, um, um, this apocalyptical literature, was simply to remind people of God's intervention in human history uh, to end and destroy the wickedness of this world, and yet presenting the present without any meaning and very pessimistic, with no hope. Where our word, the Bible, that's inspired, even though it reveals the evil, the wickedness, there's always hope. Hope is in God. That God's going to triumph at the end. That God's going to take care of that. So there's a big distinction. Now, John's apocalypse here was and is not apocalyptic in that sense then. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, not like the pseudo-prographic literature. Rather, it's he writes in his own name. And it's not fictitious. And the hope is the hope in Christ Jesus. He's unveiled as a victorious Christ here for the future things. God's Spirit is under the nature of prophecy here. John occupies the position of one being led by God to reveal God's revelation in his own words. And yet it's inspired. And he makes it clear by the word prophecy in verse 3, 22, 7, 22, 10, 18, and 19. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. The word of God. It also reveals God's um, deliverance in the present in very, uh, a very meaningful way. God is working um, in his redemptive work to bring about the final act. God will ultimately reign. God will put evil under his foot. We don't see anything and everything under his foot right now, but one day it will be, even Satan. So the kingdom is present, and it's yet to come. And ultimately it will be here, as Jesus sets up his kingdom, and he puts everything under his feet. Now, Notice the pattern of the revelation still in verse 1. It says, which God gave him and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. God the Father is the source of the revelation, the first person of the Trinity. We must distinguish between the two persons, God and pronoun him with a capital H. One's the Father, the other one's the Son. God the Father gave the revelation to the Son, Jesus Christ. So the Father is the source, gave it to his Son. Jesus, God the Son, is the channel of the revelation, the second person of the Trinity. Both are God, equal in deity. Both are perfect. And God the Son gave the revelation to his angel, true to his nature here, an office of mediator between God and man. And Jesus uh, makes this very clear in John 1.18, that Jesus is the only one who reveals the Father. John writes it down. No one else has revealed the Father except the Son. And notice the word there, signified. It means to give a sign with the idea of figurative representation, which is exactly the character of the book of Revelation. But there's a caution. When you have figurative language, it doesn't mean it's not a literal event. Okay? Um, some people will spiritualize. Well, it's figurative. It could mean this. It could mean that. No, it's literal event that's being described in a way that we can understand it. And we distinguish figurative language from literal language. But because it's figurative doesn't mean it's not going to happen literally. Let me give you an example. John 12, 32 to 33, Jesus said this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, and he interprets it, he gives the commentary, signifying, same word, by what death he would die. Now he says, I'll be lifted up. Figurative language. Crucifixion. Literal fulfillment. 
So it's figurative language, but a literal event is being described. So be careful of those that would just spiritualize it and explain it away. All right? Now, the birth of God's Son, remember, was also revealed by angels. We just finished Luke chapter 2, 10 through 14, by the shepherds at Bethlehem. Okay? Angels play a key, key phrase in the, in, the, in the Word of God. The angels uh, gave the revelation to John and the servant of, who was John, um, is the servant of the Trinity, and he gives it to us. So the Father, to the Son, to the angel, to John, and John to us, faithful. Now, one thing that happens with human communication, it gets messed up. If I uh, tell Greta something here, and she passes it down to William, and we go all the way on down, and then we pass it on there and all that. By the time it gets back here, the little seven-word sentence I gave her doesn't, is not even recognizable by the time it comes back to me. Because we're falling, we're, we corrupt things. This channel of communication is totally clear and pure because it's divine revelation. Some people have a hard time with that. That's a personal problem, okay? You don't have to worry about it. That's why he opens the book of Revelation this way. Angels serve God day and night in their various orders. And they're being used here to communicate. Uh, seraphims fly overhead uh, over the throne of God with two wings. They cover their eyes, two their feet, two they fly. And they cry, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in Isaiah 6.3. Cherubims guard the throne of God as you see the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. You have one, ark, one um, cherubim here, the other one here, crossing, looking down. You have that in the throne of God also. We'll see that in chapter 4 and 5. You find a picture of that in Exodus 25.18. Then you have archangels. There's only one that's called an archangel, and that's Michael. Uh, it, it could be that Gabriel could have been one and Satan also Lucifer another one for the Trinity. But that's just our opinion suggestion. It's not biblical. Only Michael is called in Jude verse 9. There's only one chapter there. Then you have regular angels, general population of angels, categories, ministering spirits of the earth of salvation. Hebrews 1.14 says, and they're ministering to you. I and past generations and future generations of God should tarry. But they're here for us. Now we're told to be careful lest we entertain angels unaware. We see them in the Old Testament. We see them in the New Testament. I'm sure they're, they're hanging out here this morning. Okay? There's good angels, bad angels. There's a warfare going on. If God would open our eyes, we'd blow our mind. It's a spiritual world. And so, all three pronouns, notice, refer to Christ. His servants, plural. His angel. His servant, John. And maybe this angel is the same one that's going to rebuke him when he tries to bow down to him in Revelation 22:16. We can't be sure, but possibly. Now, notice the purpose of the revelation is given. They're still in verse 1. To show his servants things which must shortly take place. God the Father gave the revelation to Jesus to show his servants. The revelation of God can only be made known by God once again. And I'm being very purposeful this morning to repeat certain things so you get it. Okay? The word show means to expose to the eye, appearing eight times in the book of Revelation. The word is used by Jesus when he told the leopard to go show himself to the high priest for the healing in Matthew 8, 4. The servants are the saints. Saints are those born again. Okay? Either you're a saint this morning or an ain't. One of the two, okay? The word servants, there is doulos. It's in the plural. 
It goes back to the bondservant of the Old Testament, one who served his master by choice. He served his master for six years, and then he would be let loose in the seven freed. If he didn't want to go free, he could tell his master, I love you, you're the best thing for me, I want to serve you for life. He would take that individual, take him to the doorpost of his house, put his ear by the doorpost, take an all a hammer, make it whole, put an earring on it. And when that man walked around with an earring, you knew he was a bondservant by choice to his master for life. Okay? Today you see a lot of guys with earrings, ask them who their master is, okay? Who are they serving? Um, This is the picture. You and I are bond servants. We're not here to be served. I deserve hell. I have the privilege of serving God and serving you and serving the rotten world that we live in. That's just the rules of the game. And if we lose that perspective... We lose everything, ladies and gentlemen. And as I look to the, the church today, it has lost its place. It's lost its way completely. And so, um, we are nothing but sinners who have repented by grace through faith, that not of ourselves the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's amazing. Those who are looking for Him to come again as He has promised. Even as Jesus told His disciples, stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many abiding places or mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for that where I am there you may be also. And if I go, I will come back to receive you to Myself. That's the first mention of the rapture. And it's by the lips of Jesus Christ. You must make a distinction between Jesus coming back for us in the rapture. And Jesus is coming back with us to set up the kingdom. First Thessalonians, he comes for us. Second Thessalonians, we come back with him. Don't confuse them. I make an emphasis on that because a lot of the church is turning away from the rapture today. And they're saying we're going to go through it. God has not appointed us to wrap with the salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5.9, Romans 5.9. We'll see Revelation 3.10. He'll keep us from the hour with the article, the seven-year tribulation. We have his promise. Now, God the Father gave the revelation notice to Jesus to make known the things which must shortly take place. The things are certain to take place by the word must, meaning necessary. There is no opinion, no suggestion. There's no question about these events to come, for they are stated, proclaimed, prophetic of God and by God, by decree, if you will. And so the word is found eight times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1 here, 4, 1, 10, 11, 11, 5, 13, 10, 17, 10, 23, 22, 6, all over. What is it that we don't understand? This is prophecy. <laughs> it's simple. Now, the revelation is one of hope, notice, indicating that God is the one who can um, in control of the future. They're not events at random chance, but divine omnipotence at work to bring about this world to a close from all the evil, including the evil one. He will be put under his foot. And the revelation is one of eminence. In other words, by the word shortly, it means speedily. With the idea of suddenly, without delay. You as a believer are to live under the understanding that the coming of Christ for us is eminent. It can happen at any time. Um, You say, well, he was writing in 95 AD. True. But nevertheless... Every generation is to be looking for the coming of Christ. Now, studying the word more and more, we understand that it can't happen until the nation of Israel is back in the land. So therefore, we know now that it couldn't have happened before 1948 because the nation of Israel 
was not in her land. Now that she's in her land, we don't see anything that's yet to be fulfilled. Ezekiel 36, 37 been fulfilled partially. They're in the land, but the Spirit's not upon them. Ezekiel 38, 39 is ready to be fulfilled as Russia will attack. God will destroy five, six that army. He'll remove the church and the tribulation will happen. The Antichrist will appear. And we're just at the cusp. Now, I'm not telling you the day or the hour. I'm telling you, get ready, be looking up. Your redemption is nearer than when you first believed. Okay? And time should never be a, a, a discouraging factor at all. And so, the revelation is one of eminence. Very, very important by the word speedily. And the revelation is one of warning about divine judgment that take place on the earth. And so, the book of Revelation is really not for us. I mean, the first three chapters and, and the four and five we can enjoy and we can benefit from. But from six on, it's for the world. It's for you to know what's going to happen so you can tell people and warn people. Okay? Paul uses the same word when he told the Romans, listen in Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Shortly. John's warning is specific. Listen to Revelation 3.10. This is one of the promises that we're not going through the great tribulation or tribulation. He says that he will keep us from the hour of trial which would come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I used to be an earth dweller. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a, I'm a stranger in this land. I'm a heavenly citizen. I'm not an earth dweller. I used to be. He will keep you from the hour. The article is there. The seven year tribulation. The last days began with the first coming of Jesus and will end at the second coming of Christ to fight the battle of Armageddon and to set up the kingdom, Revelation 19. What a difference there is in the word of God from the word of modern pronosticators when it comes to it being accurate in fulfillment. The Bible is 100% accurate in all its prophecies. You take a pronosticator such as Gene Dixon or Nostradamus, whoever you want to. Okay, here's the standard. The prophets of old had to be 100% accurate or they would be stoned to death. Who wants to take up that category? Nobody. God only knows the end from the beginning, so he's the only one who can lay things out and communicate so that it's absolutely 100%. God reveals himself to man through the person of his son. He cannot be searched out or grasped by human wisdom or intellect alone. We are not saved because we're so wise. We're, we're saved because by God's grace we have been convicted by the Spirit of God and seen our lostness and call upon His name. Listen to Paul as he writes to the Corinthians. Paul tells the Corinthians, For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we... Preach Christ crucified to the Jew a stumbling block, but to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. How grateful are you that you're saved? That God by His grace allowed you to have your eyes open to run to Him. You don't walk to Jesus Christ. You find out how lost and how bad you are. You run to Him. Paul puts it this way, and without controversy, grace, the mystery of godliness, while God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on the world, received the glory, 1 Timothy 3.16. And there he sits today, making intercession for you and I. God used the prophets of 
reveal the mind of God to his people. Such as Noah. He told Noah, I'm going to kill the whole world and judge you. I'm going to give you a hundred years to preach. Build a boat. Came to pass. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. Made to pass. He told Moses, go to Egypt, get my people. He brought them out. He told Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and the rest of them different things. And God brought it to pass. Amazing. The primary function of a prophet is this, to be the mouthpiece of God, to communicate God's word. Often the prophets were called out of normal people, as I'll show you. Because the priesthood, the kingship, and the people had become so corrupt, he called them back in repentance. Second function of a prophet is to speak future things. Most people think the primary function is future things. No, it's to be the mouthpiece of God to call people to repentance, to reveal God's mind, his will, his plan. Then secondly, future prophetic events. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals the secrets to his servants, the prophets. God never does anything unless he reveals it first. Show me one place where judgment has come that God hasn't warned the people about judgment. Noah's days, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and now the second coming. He always warns in advance. These prophets, as John, who spoke, did not speak of their own origin or their own impulse, but as God revealed and communicated to them and enabled them. Listen to what Peter says. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. They used to look at the scriptures, try to examine them. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them indicated when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, they searched, well, is this for our generation? Next generation? Sometimes it was clear, it's for us. Other times, we don't know. He says, to them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, which angels desire to look into. First Peter 1, 10 through 12. In other words, these angels, the word is stooped down. They're stooped down trying to look at the church and they're looking at it and they see it one day at a time unfolding as God works because they don't know the future. They're watching like this movie for the first time. To God, it's a rerun. Second Peter 1, 19 to 21 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Put a line through that. Bad interpretation in the King James and Old King James. It's not perfect. That's a bad interpretation. What it's talking about is the impulse or the origin. And this is the evidence of it. Look what follows. Listen carefully. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, literally carried. First Peter 1, 19-21. In other words, God communicated to these men what He wanted to be revealed. He filled them with the Spirit. That message did not come from their impulse or origin of their own hearts, but from God. And the Holy Spirit carried them along so that what they recorded and revealed was God's inerrant, infallible Word. Wow. This was the heavenly communication of the revelation here that John begins with. He puts you at ease. You can read this whole thing and never doubt a word. Wow. No sifter when you read the word of God. Every commentary I read, I have to sift it through God's word. 
You go in my library, pick out a new book, you'll find me underlined, crossover, in a circle, and a slash. No, stupid, this, I go, all kinds of stuff. The Bible, I don't have to worry about that. Notice, secondly, now comes the earthly affirmation. Verse 2. The person who revealed the revelation to man was John. He bore witness. The Apostle John is the instrument here. And again, sometimes we look at man and think that they're better than somebody. We're all the same. John is simply a vessel. The personal pronoun who refers back to him in the first one, the servant of God. That's what he is. And that's the only type of leadership and service that we have. Servant leadership. Now notice John describes himself as, as uh, in his gospel as the one who loved him. When you read the gospel of John in John 20 verse 2. Uh, the one who you know, loved Jesus and he was real close to Jesus. Uh, John was known uh, as the apostle of love. If you read First John, you can't miss it. Those five little chapters. Um, the phrase bore witness is from the word uh, uh, martillo, which means uh, to testify or to bear record. Uh, one who gives testimony of what he sees, hears, or knows. Uh, you go into a courtroom, you're a witness, you provide truthful, verifiable testimony under oath of, of perjury if you lie. Now, they used to put their hand on the Bible and raise the other one up. Now they don't do that. So what are you swearing on? You're supposed to swear on something higher than yourself to have some kind of guarantee that what you're saying, okay, you have a, a double a double protection. You're swearing by something that's higher than you. There's a God's going to get you. And then if he doesn't get you, we will when we find out you're lying. Those are two good incentives, okay? There's none of that today. So our tribunal courts and everything is a joke. Nothing can be true or nothing has to be true. We've done away with everything that's good. And so this is the word right here. The word came to be used for those who, did, who died as martyrs of the faith. Those who would not refuse to deny their faith, they would die at the hand of Caesar. Those who did refuse to, uh, to, uh, to be honorable to Jesus, they would burn that pinch of insults once a year and say Caesar is Lord. Well, the believer couldn't do that. Rome didn't care what you worshipped. As long as you pledge allegiance once a year, then you can go do whatever you want. Just don't create trouble. Well, the Christian couldn't do that. They became martyrs. Now notice John gave the revelation to the servants of God, the saints. So the chain of command follows. The servants and saints comprise the churches of Christ by all the recording in the book of Revelation in written form, the word of prophecy. He was the last apostle living in the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, 95 A.D., the others had all died under martyrdom, and um, he alone remained, which is interesting in light of uh, what Jesus told Peter about John in, his, in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 22. Jesus said to Peter, If I will that he remain till I come, meaning about John, what is that to you? You follow me. And then the next verse says, and, and there went a rumor out that John was never going to die. I have a feeling Peter spread it. That goes to show you, Peter, not under inspiration, he exaggerated. Under inspiration, you can trust him. Interesting. Now, the particulars of the revelation John was to bear witness to were three. Listen to the words here. To the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. First to the Word of God. The Word of God is in the sense that the truth being revealed or unveiled by the Father. 
that we don't mess with it. The revelation of his plan, his purpose, his pronounced judgments. Tradition says that they attempted to boil John to death, but he didn't die, so they sent him to the island of Patmos. In fact, here in chapter 1, verse 9, it says that he was nailed in Patmos for the testimony of the word of God, identifying himself with his brothers as companions in tribulations in the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ. John understands suffering. John understands the gospel costs you something. He makes identity here. Now notice the word of God is in the sense also who Jesus is. Uh, he was the incarnation and the resurrection. As he's one, he's the Lamb of God. He's glorified here in chapter 1. He's no longer here on earth. He's up in heaven. He's glorified. He's the one in control. The one who fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding his first coming. Over 300 prophecies. Now many of them as he was dying on the cross. Now he will fulfill the rest of them. Old and new, whatever it may be. What would give you any inclination to think that he won't fulfill the rest that he fulfilled over 300 the first time? On what basis do you have the freedom to say that he will not fulfill it? But secondly, notice to the testimony of Jesus. This is the, what's called an epistolary heiress. Big old phrase. Placing himself, John in his writings... At that time that his book is read in the churches, in the Greek, the tenses, so when they read it, it's like he's speaking right to them, directly. And what is it about? That he is at, at the throne, verse 4. He's at his throne. That he is a faithful witness to the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, verse 5. That it is he who loves us and washed us from all our sins in his own blood, verse 5. That he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, verse 6. That to him is to be ascribed glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, verse 6. Amazing things. Things that you and I need to embrace and understand more than ever. And then thirdly, notice to all things that he saw. The reigning and glorious high priest who entered the Holy of Holies in heaven and is in the midst of the churches, seeing, hearing all and directing them. Verse 12 through 20. He's seen everything. He sees the junk. He sees the hypocrisy. He sees the theft. He sees the adultery. He sees the junk. He sees everything. Nothing escapes him. The compromising and evil condition of the seven churches and the warning to repent is evident enough as we go through them. The only two that don't have that is Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna is a suffering church. When you're suffering, you don't have time to play games. When you're Philadelphia, you're, you're little in strength and you're dependent on Christ. Very, very important. Now, the vision of the Lamb of God who was worshipped in heaven and worthy to take the scroll... In chapter 4 and verse 5, and to loosen the seal and redeem the earth as all heaven and earth under the earth and in the sea was giving blessing and honor and glory to him there on the throne is given to us there in chapter 4 and 5. So the warning to the church is chapter 2 and 3. And then we see him glory being worshipped, chapter 4 and 5. The audience is there, that's you and I, that's the church. And then from 6 to 18, you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bold judgment or vials, depending on your translation. The wrath of God being poured out on this earth, the kingdom of the Antichrist in this godless world. 
So the book of Revelation really is the easiest to understand because the table of contents is given to us in chapter 1. The things he saw, the glorified Christ, the things that are the church age, chapter 2 and 3, and the interlude of 4 and 5 up in heaven, and then the things that shall be hereafter, the tribulation, the point of God's wrath. A three-fold table of contents is given in chapter 1. There's no way you can mess up the book of Revelation. God made sure of that by giving us a table of contents. Otherwise, we really would have made a doozy out of it. You remember King Amaziah? As Amos was called to prophesy in the northern kingdom, very idolatrous kingdom, he said this, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy of Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel, the northern kingdom. I'm just a sheep breeder. I'm a a fruit picker. Don't talk to me. Don't blame me. Go talk to God. A perfect, perfect picture of a prophet when the whole nation's gotten corrupt, and he sends them up north to preach against idolatry. You know, God is not interested in seeking out great men and women, but rather men and women who are willing to proclaim the great Savior. Today, there's too much pastor worship, too much glorifying in the activities of the church and how great we are and how popular we are, and we're trying to compete with the world and and Hollywood. It must be nauseating to the angels in heaven. Ezekiel puts it this way. And this is God speaking through Ezekiel, Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Now, do you think God is exaggerating? There have been times when God has been looking. He goes to and fro looking for a man to show himself and he hasn't found one. Wow. Jeremiah, if you remember, in chapter 1, 4 through 10, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet of the nations. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have made this day to set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. Very, very difficult ministry. If you remember, Jeremiah stood alone. He was beat, he was accused, he was incarcerated, he was put in a dungeon down in the mud, he was fed bread and water until the the whole city was taken by Babylon, but God was faithful, he brought him through. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus as he sojourned. He came to Damascus and suddenly a light shone all around him, as you know. And he fell to the ground and heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard to kick uh, 
against the goats. And so he trembling, astonished, said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Acts 9, 3 through 6. As you know, Ananias came in a vision. He saw the Lord told him. And I said, Lord, don't you know that? Yeah, I know who he is. He says, Brother Saul, get up. For the Lord has made you an anointed vessel, a chosen vessel. Wow. Amazing. God is always looking for a man or a woman to make themselves available to communicate his word. Ladies and gentlemen, our, our world is dark. And let me tell you, warfare has just begun. We are born into warfare, but where you're going to get hammered by, the, by this world, by your flesh, by Satan, by everything else. The warfare is going to intensify. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 21, 26 and 31. For you, um, see your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And those, those things, the base things of the world, and the things that are despised of God, as He has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence, but in Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. This is the only... The only place we have any right to glory. Not in the church. Not in the building. Not in the pastor. Not in our program. Not in not nothing. In Jesus Christ. The reason for being so narrow-minded about the message is given by Paul to the Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God to salvation, the Jew first and to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Nothing can help you. Nothing can save you except for the gospel. Absolutely nothing. You are lost, wretched, and headed for hell. You might think you're having fun, but when you get to your destiny, it's not going to be fun. There's not one person in hell this afternoon that is glad that they didn't choose Jesus Christ. Not one. This was the earthly affirmation of the revelation. Thirdly comes the spiritual compensation in verse 3. Notice the person who reads the words of the revelation will be blessed. Blessed is she who reads the words of this prophecy. The word for blessed, as you know, means, oh, how happy. It's the same word that Jesus used for the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 through 10. And these are the very words of Jesus. Listen, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Luke eleven twenty eight. One without the other is half a lie and half a truth. Only both of them together is complete truth. This happiness is happiness in its truest form and sense. It's not based on the happiness of the world, or circumstance, situations, emotions, or what I have, or who I am. But it's the truest happiness, understanding that we have been forgiven for all of our sins, and that not one of them will ever be mentioned. And I want you to really think of what I'm going to say, because we are so carnal and so... I, there's not even a word how bad we are. But every sin that you have ever committed... 
the one that your wife doesn't know about, the one that your husband doesn't know about. If you have repented, it has been cast as far as the east of the west and the deepest ocean, and it will never be mentioned by God. Now, if that doesn't make you happy, you're dead. You are absolutely dead. Man. The person who hears the word of God, the revelation will also be blessed. And the revelation here is talking about the book of Revelation here. Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. That's the context. The practice of someone uh, reading the congregation was comes from the synagogue. A pastor would read the passage. And um, later on, lectors read the reading, and that you have that in denominations and professional readers that read certain things. Uh, but not all in the days of John also, you have to understand, and we lose sight of this sometimes, but many in the, in, in the church were illiterate. They couldn't read or write. In fact, history gives us that affirmation also, that many people who came to Christ were illiterate, and they became literate by the Bible, reading and studying it. Able to read, able to write. And by the way, the first textbook in the public school system in the United States was the Bible. You might send an email to Congress. Um, the Bible. Greatest idea in the world. The word here is a cool. It means to be endowed with the faculty of hearing, to attend to, to consider, to understand on what's being said. And when that ability has been given to you as a Christian, and I, then I am, I am heavily responsible for living it out and doing it. And that's why when I don't, it crushes me. It grieves me, and I hate it. Because I know that I'm under obligation. Not by a law but by the love of Jesus Christ. The word appears 46 times in the book of Revelation. Here, here, here. Key word, 46 times. And notice the person who keeps those things which are written in the Revelation will be blessed. Blessed is he who keeps those things which are written in it, the book of Revelation. The blessing is not a mere reading, but in keeping the word again. The word keep means here to observe, to guard. The word is translated whole fast addressing the church of Sardis. Listen, in Revelation 3.3, 3, he says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard whole fast, there's the word, and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know the, what hour I will come upon you. Is he talking to Christians or non-believers? He's talking to Christians. Warning is always to Christians. The seven churches are Christian. They become corrupt. The non-believer is dead. You preach to them. You evangelize them. You be patient with the non-believer. They're dead. A believer, you're not as patient because they have the ability to hear and obey. Are we clear on that? If you're a Christian, you're all mine. I want to be loving. I want to be gracious. 
But if you give me lame excuses, I'm going to make ground meat out of you. You're a Christian, right? Reading brings greater responsibility and accountability to God. Hearing. The blessing is not in mere hearing, but in keeping what one hears. There's always those who um, love knowledge. It's based on pride. And the worst form of pride is spiritual pride. Flaunting the knowledge they have heard while not keeping it. It's greater condemnation. The blessing comes in keeping what is written in this book of Revelation. Let me give you some of the things. Repenting from one's sins. You say, oh, I'm saved. Oh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't sin? You don't fall short at times? Remembering to live holy. Be careful the emergent church is bringing holiness down. That you can cuss, you can drink, you can whatever. It's okay. Really? Wow. The warning is given again at the very end of the book. Listen, Revelation twenty-two, eighteen through 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Don't ask me to mess with the book of Revelation. I'm just going to give it to you exactly as it is. And that's what I try to do with the rest of the word, but especially in the book of Revelation. Very, very dangerous. He's talking to Christians. The persons are to know and understand the reason behind the blessing. Listen what he says. For the time is near. The last days are about over. The church age. The word for time is kairos. It means the measure of time, whether it be large or small. It is a proper or specific time, like a specific day, a birthday or a week or a season like winter or something like that. Uh, very specific. Second um, uh, Peter 3 eight says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day of the Lord. So the difference between God and us is that we live in a linear chronological time zone of past, present, and future. Uh, God lives outside of... Man's time domain, he lives in eternal present. So a thousand to a one, it doesn't matter. There's no difference to him. Okay, he's outside. To us, we're so conscious of time. The word of God will come to pass. It will be fulfilled. Time is irrelevant. The word is used for the due time that Christ died for the ungodly in Romans 5, 6. It's also used uh, for redeeming the time, kairos. Because the day is evil, Ephesians 5.16. If Paul said, redeem the time for the day is evil, the time, how much worse is it now? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's the whole world. The word was commonly used in eschatological, meaning end times, sense to indicate the time of crisis, decisive moment. To make a decision. The demoniacs of Gadara said to Jesus, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the Kairos time? 
Matthew 8, 28. There comes a time when God's going to judge all the fallen angels. Some of them are demons. He's going to judge them and cast them apart from him for all eternity. They're very aware of that. Now notice the time is closer than people think. The word for near means at hand to be in place and position to begin the event and reveal it. He's speaking at 95 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. We're 2,000 years closer. As we look at the world, we see Russia posturing, we see China, we see Israel all alone. The whole world has turned its back on Israel. When Netanyahu spoke last week, it should be clear to you that the truth was stated of the true condition of the world, Iran, United States, and Israel. And it should be very clear to you that the United States is not for Israel. Absolutely not. It is a lie to say that we are for Israel. And that bothers me and it concerns me because Genesis 12.3 says, Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. You do a study on every nation that has gone against Israel. You might want to start with Rome and then uh, maybe Hitler, maybe um, uh, Spain, uh, maybe England, and maybe next time United States. Where are they at now? Very, very, very dangerous. The same word is used at the end of the Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 10 says, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Daniel was told to seal the book in Daniel 8, 9, and 12. The book of Revelation has never been sealed. The book of Revelation answers the long-awaited prayer. You know what it is? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Matthew 6, 10. It's the answer to the prayer we're praying. <laughs> the power of the Word of God is amazing. Spurgeon one time was just reading the Bible. Just reading the Bible from the pulpit. And there was a guy up in the rafters working to his uh, uh, unawareness of it. And he became so convicted that he went home and repented in his living room. Wow, just reading the Word. Not even knowing he's there. God nailed the guy. Listen to the words of Spurgeon. The hearing of the gospel involves the hearing, the hearer in responsibility. It is a great privilege to hear the gospel. You may smile and think there is nothing very great about it. The damned in hell know. Oh, what would they give if they could hear the gospel now? If they could come back and entertain, but the shadow of a hope that they might yet escape from the wrath to come. The saved in heaven estimate the, this privilege at a high rate. For having obtained salvation through the preaching of the gospel, they can never cause or cease to be blessed by their God for calling them by his word of truth. Oh, that you knew it. On your dying bed, the listening to the gospel sermon will seem another thing than it seems now. You may be saying, you know, I wish this guy would just shut up and be over. I got to get out of here. What is he talking about? But let me tell you, when you're about to die, or when things happen bad to you, you will cry like a little girl. And you will call upon God. Guaranteed. We act tough. But because the shove. This gospel is gold. It's not a dirt clod. It's pure gold. How many people in Christ are so unhappy because they do not read the Bible? And I'm talking about Christians. 
on a daily basis. Some of you come in on Sunday and then you fast the rest of the week until next Sunday. That's bad for you. You don't read the Word of God during the week and you end up being bombarded and tempted and everything else. Your mind is an anxiety. Your mind doesn't have peace. You don't fall in the category of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 through 7, the peace of the palace, all understanding. Because you don't put the Word of God in you every day. You don't wash your mind. You don't fill your heart and all of that. You think that you're sufficient in yourself. And you go out there in the flesh and you get beat up. Your mind and heart is pulled and tempted. And the works of the flesh are manifested from Monday to Friday to Saturday. Ephesians, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And you feel bad and you grieve and all that. But it doesn't do any good to feel like that. Your heart perhaps is entrapped with the riches of the world. And your strain and your faith you're going to deny. And you're going to be deceived by the riches. 1 Timothy 6.10 you know how many people I've known who have sat in the same chair you're sitting in that said, I would never leave Christ. I would never do this. I would never do that. 42 years, you get to see a few people. You don't bring your thoughts into captivity to your full obedience to Christ and you give in to things and it leads from one thing to the other and before you know it, you're there. Second Corinthians ten four through five, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, bringing down the strongholds of the enemy. The word of God is of the greatest benefit to the believer in his life. It's called many many different things as you go through the Bible: perfect, pure, restraining force, truth, enduring, effectual, a lamp, fire, hammer, seed, the word, water that washes the living, active word, and on and on and on. The person who reads, hears the word of God, and especially the book of Revelation, does not keep it and obey it, they are fools. Absolutely. They're deceiving themselves. Listen to Ezekiel. God speaking through him. Ezekiel 33, 32. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has pleasing voice, and you can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. People come in Sunday after Sunday and they love, oh man, you just hammer, boy, I love, oh man, you, but they just hear. And I'm like, look, what a beautiful song to you, but you don't live it. You don't do it. Hmm. James says, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. James 1.26 you're prone to this. I'm prone to this. We're all made of the same stuff. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to gather together. We need to pray for one another. We need to let God work through us. James gave us many parables. I mean, Jesus gave us many parables of warning us against ignoring the warnings of the Word of God that uh, warned us about His coming and not listening and being doers of His Word. Let me give you some of these. Matthew twenty four thirty. Then the sign of the Lord of the Son of God will appear in heaven, and then will all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Wow! Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. Revelation one seven. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at the hour that you do not expect. Matthew twenty four forty four. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour which the Son of Man is coming. Matthew twenty five thirteen. 
Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour which the Son of Man comes. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke twenty one thirty six. I pray every day, Lord, let me obey you. Let me be worthy of you. Let me just, but I don't want to be here. I love you, but I don't want to be left behind. I don't want my wife to be left behind. I don't want my children. I don't want my grandchildren behind. I don't want to see you left behind. And so we need to pay heed to this. This was the spiritual compensation of the revelation that he's given. There's a compensation to obedience, to yielding to him, to believe in this stuff. So John's prologue opens up the book of Revelation, qualifying the entire book of Revelation as being divinely inspired, evident by these three truths. The heavenly communication of the revelation. It's God's word. It's not a suggestion. The earthly affirmation of the revelation. We can understand it. Therefore, we need to believe it and live it out. And the spiritual compensation of the revelation. God will bless us. He will direct us. He will guide you. He will be for you. He will strengthen you. He will be there. I mean, what better news could there be? Hmm. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We worship you. Lord, we pray that you just deal with our hearts. Father, forgive us for the things that we fail in and the things that we just sometimes don't care. Lord, I pray for every person, Lord, and for myself most of all, that your hand be upon us. Your word would just transform us from day to day. Lord, I pray for those that are here that perhaps do not know you. You would make yourself known and speak to their hearts. As you're praying, if you're not born again, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. Only you can repent of your sins. If you see yourself as a sinner, it's God's grace. By His Holy Spirit. Maybe you're over the internet. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you believe what we've said here, and God has made you to see your evilness and your lostness, then that's God's grace. Call upon His name. Do not hesitate. Do not put it off. For tomorrow's promise to nobody. It's called repentance. If you want to be born again and be forgiven of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ, then you can say this prayer to Him, and He's going to do that for you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.